Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we invite you to find your story within God's bigger story. We are a church that lives for something bigger than ourselves and is passionate to proclaim and demonstrate the way of Jesus. We are currently living through a time of radical shifts in technology, ethics, secular ideologies, and religion. Our culture is increasingly shallow and lonely. Yet, rather than offering an alternative, the Big C Church often remains silent or compromised. In a time of compromise and disillusionment, God is calling his people to a movement of beautiful resistance. We invite you to join us as we walk through the final chapter of the Book of Romans and experience a renewed vision for who the church can be, replacing compromise with conviction. If you would like to visit and attend in person, we would love to have you. Go to waterstonechurch.org to RSVP for a weekend service time on Saturday evening or Sunday morning. A reading from Romans 13. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Elliot. I'm the student pastor here at Waterstone. If you're watching online, uh, we just want to say welcome to you as well. Uh, We see that you're there and we love that you worship with us and are part of this experience every week. We're in a series right now uh, called The Beautiful Resistance, where we are looking at how the transformed life leads us to respond and interact differently in our context than the world around us. Uh, The verses that we're looking at today, Romans 13, that you just heard read, are some of the most misused and abused verses in all of Scripture. Uh, I want to explain to you how they are often interpreted and historically have been, and then we're going to look at a couple examples. So this is often how these verses have been interpreted. To say this, that God has appointed every specific person who is in power and therefore has affirmed their decisions. To oppose that person or the laws they have instituted is to oppose God himself. Again, this is not the actual reading of uh, Romans 13 or, or an accurate understanding of it, but it is a common interpretation. It's led to genocide, uh, um, endorsed by the Pope in the 1400s, to domestic abuse down the street, 
But I want to look actually at American history, our history, so to speak, um, and start at the beginning. 1770. Oh, come on. Three patriots in the audience. Mel Gibson would be discouraged. All right, so 1776. So we're going to go back to the very beginning. We got this beautiful picture of uh, Washington crossing the Delaware. The loyalist loved Romans 13. If you had family back in the United Kingdom, if you were a proud Brit, if you loved the crown, then you loved Romans 13. Because Romans 13 said that who cares if we're being taxed and not represented back in the mother country. The God that we know has put the king in power and the king has set up the system that we live in. To oppose the king is to oppose God. Now, patriots hated this reading. They rejected that understanding of Romans 13 until 1776. And the Continental Congress rolls around. And history shows us from documents that the same patriots that rejected the loyalist understanding of Romans 13 adopted it for themselves. Fast forward the VHS tape of American history and we stop at 1850. 75 years later, the Fugitive Slave Act just was passed. And what this says is that if you are harboring a slave or you know where a slave is, you can be held accountable similar to the slave him or herself. Well, again, slave owners in the South who are Christian people or check the census box that I am a Christian said, no, no, no. Romans 13 gives us every justification. Look, I'll be honest, I don't like slavery. I mean, my entire livelihood and family and history is based off the thing, but I don't really like it. I'm just obeying the Bible. Romans 13 says, if our government allows it, then I might as well and have to obey the government. Now, abolitionists in the North become angry. In fact, this is a poster that they put up, just like you'd have today of, you know, Cory Gardner voted for, or John Hickenlooper. They're dropping names here to say this person opposed or supported this bill. And what the abolitionists argued was that God's moral law was above Romans 13. And now, to really just step on toes, we're going to fast forward to 2018 to our main man, Jeff Sessions, attorney general. And in a press conference, Jeff Sessions uses Romans 13 um, in a conversation around the immigration policy where children and parents are separated at the border. Now, let me go ahead and just reply all to all your emails I'll get Monday morning. And let you know this, this is not a statement about the complexity legally or ethically about this immigration policy. I really don't care if you have a secret shrine to Jeff Sessions in your attic or if his face is on the dartboard in your garage. This is a statement that as Christians, which is the spiritual blood you and I share if you're a Christian, we should at the very least be skeptical when politicians want to use Romans 13, a highly misused and abused passage, to validate their own authority. At best, it's self-serving. At worst, it's a possible abuse of the Word of God. But where does it leave us today? You see, Romans 13 historically has been used much like a mirror one in which we step in front of and we see the things that reflect who we are. 
We see our own beliefs. And let me be clear, it's not really Jeff Session or um, those who lived in the South in the 1850s or loyalists in the 1700s. It's you and it's me. I do this. We step in front of Scripture and we allow it to reflect back to us the things that we already see. It's confirmation bias. What I want to ask of you today is that we look at Romans 13 and honestly allow it to shape us, to challenge us, and to critique us. We are in a moment right now in our uh, country where we need to have some guidance and some clarity from on high on how we interact and respond to our government with a contested election just behind us and the storming and breach of the Capitol on January 6th, these are days where we need clarity, not from even me, but from the Word of God. And so what I want to do is look really at what it says. There was an um, article I read a couple weeks ago that talked about uh, how many evangelicals voted Republican last election. And uh, where kind of demographically evangelicals fall, and obviously there's a split in this room, there's a split and it had a joke in there that said, two evangelicals uh, go to heaven. They both die, they go to heaven. And uh, they get there and they finally get to ask God whatever they want. And so they say, God, you got to tell us, who actually won in 2020? And God looks at them and says, the results were the results, Biden won. And one evangelical looks at the other and says, oh man, this goes even higher than I thought. All right, so here's the deal. All our Democrat friends laughed in the audience, all right? Republicans are not laughing. But before our Democratic friends get too smug, let's remind you of 2016, when your party didn't win. How many of us thought that this is God taking his hands off the, our nation? That this is God removing um, his guidance of our leadership? That this is God's judgment on our country? It is funny, the joke about the evangelicals, but the reality is whichever camp you fall into, red team or blue team, we too often interpret who's in power as whether or not God has put them there and is part of our nation. Romans 13 says that's not an accurate reading. At least most of the time, that's not an accurate reading. So let, let's look at the text today, and we're going to look at three simple things. First, the nature of authority. Second, the purpose of authority. And third, our response to authority. So let's do that. We're going to look at Romans 13 verses 1 and 2 first. And I would ask you to um, see what words and concepts are repeated in just two verses here. I'll read aloud if you would just follow along by listening. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Let's begin by what Paul is not saying in this text. Paul is not saying every specific person has been appointed by God. So that means Biden, Putin, and Kim Jong-un, or whichever one we're on now, that they've all been appointed specifically by God. 
Instead, what Paul is actually saying is authorities as a structure have been instituted by God. The word that's used here for authority, which you won't remember by the time you are driving home today, and that's okay, it's called, it's a exousia. It's a Greek word that literally translates power, or even the word liberty, and guess what? Authority. In other words, it's an impersonal noun. It's not a personal noun. And Paul repeats it over and over. In fact, in the entire uh, section we're looking at today, verses 1 through 7, he keeps using this one word, exousia. Because it doesn't mean a specific person is put in power. The reason this matters is when we believe a specific person or every specific person is put in power, we give way too much power to that one person. It's it's the right of kingship historically, right? Henry VIII, what is it? It's uh, divorce, beheaded, died. Say it with me if you know it. Divorce, beheaded, died. Divorce, beheaded, survived. No history bus today. All right. That would mean that the ones that got divorced deserved it, that God wanted that, that he ordained that. The ones that got beheaded deserved it. The one that died. What Paul is saying is no. God has put a structure of authority in place for us as humans. Paul wants us to know that it is about positions and not about people. There, there is important nuance here because some of you are smart and you're, th- well, hopefully many of you are smart. Some of you are my students. Um, and so you are thinking, okay, time out. What about Saul? Paul put Saul in place. He's not a very good leader. What about how God interacts with Nebuchadnezzar or the king of Egypt, or the Pharaoh? There are exceptions for sure. And let me be clear, there is mystery in how God works with government. But Paul is clear here that what he is affirming is the nature of authority, not every person in authority. So that's what Paul is not saying. Let's look at what he is. He says over and over in those verses, established, established, instituted. Paul tells us that, yes, this was not an accident. You can look at the anteater, and if we're honest as Christians, think, maybe an accident, God. It's okay. But when we look at government and authority, Paul wants us to know this is not accidental. God has intentionally placed authority here. So what does that mean? It means that authority by nature is good. The nature of authority is good. It's not a necessary evil to kind of um, withhold and refrain us from just wrecking havoc at least not the way it was intended. We can see this in two ways. The first is how God created, and the second is who God is. How God created first. We have the scene of Adam in the garden, and there's always a leaf covering up very specific areas. And we see that when God created, he put the livestock, the animals, and the earth underneath Adam. In fact, he instructs Adam to subdue the earth. There's authority. And yet he puts Adam in the garden. He creates Adam. He names Adam. And he is over Adam. There is a structure of authority before the fall. 
As Christians, if you're not familiar with that term, we, we use this word the, or phrase, the fall, to say that in human history, there was a place in it where God had designed everything the way he wanted it. And that included our free will. And when man breaks from that free will, all of a sudden, distortions enter the world. But we have to look at the things before the fall, before that moment, and say these were good. So, for instance, sex, free will, authority, these are all good things God made in the garden that we have distorted. To put it simply, the nature of authority is good, human nature is not. So first we see it through how God created, second we see it with who God is. We speak about the Trinity, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that the Father sends the Son to earth, that the Son then returns to heaven and sends the Spirit. Let me be clear, this is not an order, a pecking order in the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are entirely God. That's what we believe as Christians, each one of the persons of the Trinity. But that within the Trinity, there is still order and that there's structure. So the nature of authority is good. So if the nature of authority is good, we have to ask, what's the purpose of authority? And Paul answers that in verses three through four. This is what he says. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear or of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Paul says, simply put this, the purpose of authority is to discourage evil and to encourage flourishing. He uses the, um, the visualization for his audience of a sword. Um, they would have seen a sword the same way that you and I might see a police badge or an electric chair or handcuffs. It symbolized the authority to punish evil or to protect those who are innocent, even to prevent those who want to do evil. And Paul is saying part of the purpose God's given us authority is to discourage evil. That's the sword. We see this in ways that we like and we don't like. When it's January 16th and it's the last day you can return something to Park Meadows Mall after uh, the holiday seasons and you are just racing down 470, right? You're heading to Park Meadows. You know what I'm talking about. You're not in the express lane. You're actually passing the people in the express lane, which is how you know you're really winning at life. Which, By the way, they use our money to build a lane for three years and then charge us to drive on it is a whole other thing with authority for another sermon. But you're racing to the express lane and all of a sudden in your rearview mirror, red and blue lights start flashing. And you say one of the most earnest prayers of your life to God. Lord, in the name of Jesus, may this policeman need to return something as well. Those are the realistic moments we do not like the sword, right? If we're honest, we don't. We're not fans of it. But there are more serious moments where we are. 
where something inside of us is glad that we don't have to wait until judgment day for God's justice to come. I think about um, uh, this picture here. Many of you will know who this is. This is uh, Timothy McVeigh, uh, the person that bombed a federal building in Oklahoma City in 1995. Timothy McVeigh killed 168 people, and 15 of those were children in a preschool. Um, Later, he callously and coldly referred to them as collateral damage and admitted that he knew that there would be children um, whose lives were taken. Timothy McVeigh is a person who God allows our government to hold the sword so that we don't have to wait for justice until kingdom come. Uh, Those children, by the way, would be my age today. And so this is maybe me stepping away from the text and saying, I am glad that I live in a world where God has said, yes, the sword has been handed to discourage evil to the authorities, not to the specific people always, but to the authority structures in place. So nature of authority, good. Human nature, not. The purpose of authority, discourage evil and encourage human flourishing. You know, when Paul's writing uh, the New Testament and parts of it, actually a lot of it, he doesn't have the tools that you and I have. He doesn't have your little uh, daughter or son sitting next to him with color-coordinated Crayola crayons so he can put red things about Jesus' death and green things about Jesus' miracles and maybe white about salvation. And everyone's like, white's kind of hard to read, Paul. And he's like, just be quiet. He doesn't have, you know, copy and paste or bold or italicized. And so as the New Testament writers had to emphasize things, they used a structure called a chiasm. Many of you have heard of this before, but Romans 1 through 7, uh, chapter 13, 1 through 7 is a chiasm. And it comes to a point. And this is the point. Verse 13, or chapter 13, verse 4. Uh, Let's put it up just as the verse, and I'll read it. This is, so to speak, Paul's big idea for the passage. He says this, For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. Paul wants you and I to know that, yes, as much as we get frustrated sometimes with the toll road, and we do, God has placed authority structures in position for our good. This is an easy point when we think about um, police officers, nurses, um, firefighters, mental health specialists. I'll say as a person who works in a church, that's probably the area of government I am most grateful for and interact with most frequently. Is that Jefferson Center for Mental Health, JCMH, they're not actually a government-run organization, but they're funded by government funds, largely Medicaid. And the ministry that they do, or Really, in some ways, yes, the ministry, but the work that they do, they're a secular organization, is only possible because of your tax dollars and mine. When I first came to Waterstone, I was suggested to go to a a multi-day training there. It was uh, suicide prevention and intervention. And I will tell you that I had no idea seven years ago, coming just out of undergrad and the East Coast and moving here, how critical this training would be for the rest of my life, sadly, But nonetheless, how important. 
And I say this with gratitude, but also as someone who loves the Bible and loves the church. There's no Bible study I've come across online or in person that had the same depth of content that I needed here. There's no church or scripture passage that could have educated me in ways that I needed to know how to be equipped to serve the church. God has given authority structures to us, not just to discourage evil, evil, but to encourage human flourishing. So here's the tough part. What's our response? How do we respond to our authorities? Paul says this in Romans 13, 5. Therefore, it is necessary to... Ooh, that hurts. Uh, let me do it again. Therefore, it is necessary... Can you guys help me? Do you mind with the S word there? Therefore, it is necessary to... Submit. All right, I'm a youth pastor. You got to do better than that, okay? Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. This is where it gets tough. Paul says that we should submit the S word. I got to be honest, I'd rather preach on the actual S word than preach on this S word. I, honest, I really struggled with this text because what he says to us is that we should give respect and reward. In other words, give respect to those in authority, but there's a reward. He uses the word that we owe them. We actually owe them something. Our police officers, our librarians, our nurses, our public servants, our authorities, even the people on the HOA board. God says, no, as Christians... The beautiful resistance. You like, you like the idea of beautiful resistance? It costs us. It's hard. You want to live differently? You want to stand out? Then respect those in authority and give them the reward that they deserve. Uh, to be totally honest, I struggled with this uh, message so much this week. I called Paul Jocelyn, our teaching pastor. I talked to with Larry, my wife Madison. And I just thought, is there any way I can get to this junction and not go straight? Is there any other turn? I thought to myself, well, okay, maybe Paul's talking about the ideal. Because so far it kind of seems like the ideal of how authority is supposed to operate. And the ideal of how they're supposed to, or their nature, and how they're supposed to act in our world. And I don't live in the ideal, I live in the real. You do too. So maybe I can get around it. But then I realized that Paul is speaking to Christians who are under the rule of Nero. Now granted, Nero before the infamous and evil persecution of Christians, but even that Nero made Biden look like a brownie and Donald Trump look like a Girl Scout. So we can't wish it away by saying, no, 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 no. This isn't realistic. The letter to those believers applies to them, but not to us entirely. It does. I then thought to myself, okay, what about God's righteous anger? If there's one element of God's character that I can really get behind, it's his righteous anger. Okay? 
Uh, 470 is a great place for righteous anger. And I thought, no. Uh, One, your righteous anger is probably not righteous, and mine is absolutely not righteous. But this is not where God leads us. It's not where Jesus leads us to respond to authority. What I wrestled with is that Paul essentially says, when government doesn't reflect God's heart, we still do. And for me, that's really hard. In some ways, I think it's right that it's hard. It's counterintuitive to us as humans. In fact, there is a degree where we see injustices. We live in a country that legalizes evil at times and discourages good and beautiful things. We might be in the best Babylon on earth right now, but it's still Babylon. Paul is writing to Christians in Rome, which for that point in history was a very developed and civilized nation, but it still was a secular one, not run by the kingdom of God and his ethics. So then how do we respond? That's great, pastor, you said submit, but what does it look like? Well, I'll tell you this, it's not weakness and passivity. It's the example of Jesus, which is meekness and engagement. In the smallest ways, even when you vote, you choose whose hand wields the sword. And Jesus says, Paul says, we submit to government, not out of apathy and cynicism, but out of respect for God himself and as a model that we follow Jesus. It means we pay our taxes quite literally. That April 14th is a day that we as Christians feel a greater sense of responsibility and maybe even joy. Because we know that when there's a deranged person on a 16th Street mall and you're there with a friend or roommate or family member, that you can call a police officer to go approach that person. That if you're on your way to work and you see an accident and no one's responded, that you can call paramedics or firefighters to show up and do their job. We as Christians support the encouraging of flourishing. And that includes our taxes. But it also includes our respect. Respect and reward. For those of you who didn't win this election... It means speaking respectfully about those who did. And for those of you who did win this election, for some of you, or maybe honestly all of you, it means repenting for the ways you spoke about the last administration. This is not to say as Christians you can't think critically, but there's a difference between us thinking critically, which I believe we're called to, and being critical Paul says our response is to submit, to give the respect and the reward that even when our government doesn't reflect God's heart, we do. If you are listening to this and you're thinking, I'm going to leave pretty dissatisfied, you are probably getting it. Paul Jocelyn, our teaching pastor, said last week, He said, if the Jesus you're following doesn't transform the way you treat your enemies, then it's probably not Jesus you're following. Well, Paul's not in the room right now, 
So I'm gonna borrow his language and say, if the Jesus you're following doesn't transform the way you speak about, treat, and think about authorities, pray about authorities, then it's probably not Jesus we're following. All right. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, great. I get that. I'm with you. But what about when the world really turns upside down? When can I go all Mel Gibson and the Patriot and grab my hatchet and my Bible? What we have in Scripture, because by the way, Paul did not mean to sit down and give a holistic theology of government or how Christians respond to government. So every answer we need is not in this one text. But to wrap up, I want to give you the other side of Nero's infamous and evil persecution of Christians. Paul writes before and the disciple John writes afterwards. In Revelation 13, this is what John has to say when the world has turned upside down. He says this, If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Would you mind reading that last sentence with me? This calls for patient endurance and the faithfulness on the part of God's people. The truth is I am still wrestling with this message today. It just happens to be Sunday, so I had to get up here and do it. But what I know is that God has called us as Christians to live and to reflect his heart even when our government does not. My ask is that we at Waterstone would not use Romans 13 like one more mirror in history that reflects our beliefs, that we'd wrestle with the text We'd allow the spirit to work inside us and that we would reflect God's heart. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning we have heard um, a challenging word from Paul. I ask that you would help us, please help me even, as we want to live this out, but we also recognize how difficult this is. God, do what only you can do Help us live the beautiful resistance and transform our hearts. In Jesus' name.